Welcome to the Eat Wild podcast. This is a podcast designed to focus on eating wild and trying to make your eating habits more sustainable. We hope you enjoy. In this episode, we talk to Bod from Vale House Kitchen, which is a country skills and cookery school. Hi, Bod, how are you? I'm really well, Louisa. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to the Eat Wild podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. This isn't your first podcast, is it? Have you done? I've done a few, not millions, but um, I've done some. I was on a local radio one. Yeah, I've done a. I've done a couple. So it's still quite novel. I find it quite good fun. I love having a good chat. And also, you and I always chat for hours anyway. We do. I know you've been up into the school a few times, up to Vale House Kitchen. So. Yeah. Well, firstly, could you tell us what Vale House is? Yeah. So, um, Vale House Kitchen, we're a country stills and cookery school. Bizarrely, we've been open 10 years this year. It's our 10th oh. anniversary. We might do, actually. Um, we've, I mean, we've had... Well, we do have loads of incredible tutors and we've also had some tutors that have um, headed off because they've sort of relocated geographically and stuff. So we're thinking we might try and get a few of them back and have um, a bit of a get together, as it were. But um, yeah, so Bauhaus Kitchen, we're a country skills and cookery school. Um, The idea originally came when I'd been out fishing on the X and I'd caught an escapee rainbow that I bought back here. And we uh, filleted it and ate it and we had it with potatoes from our garden and other things from our garden. And we were like, you know, this is this is really amazing. If you can show people that they can go out, catch fish, fillet it, grab, gather ingredients from the garden, then um, I think you have. We chat a lot about getting people reconnected with food. And um, I think if you do have a connection with what's on your plate, it automatically tastes a lot better. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, so we do a lot of that. I mean, I've uh, I've fished and shot for uh, certainly most of my adult life. Um, I actually started fishing when I was about four with my poor grandfather. I used to get him up at sort of half past five in the morning. They lived in Warwick and they lived near the Grand Union Canal. So we used to go and sit there and catch like little perch and little dace and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, I've uh, throughout my life, I guess I've... Um, used my sort of country sport connections as a way of gathering food if that makes sense yeah um, so um yeah so we and so, um, and so we, that's how so how did the idea of literally that was you just had that well, there was that, I mean there were a few things it's all well it's it's quite a long story there were a few things that happened um I'm a, I'm a really big fa- a big fan of River Cottage actually a lot of the, our tutors both uh past and present have at some stage sort of been at River Cottage. Um, So we went to uh, a game course there. I went to a game course there with my wife, Annie, and uh, it was fantastic. We sort of butchered a deer and we did some stuff with some feathered game and stuff. And at the end of it, I sort of said, oh, this has been great, but wouldn't it have been really good if someone had, if we chopped that deer off and chopped that pheasant? Um, And that sort of put a little seed into my mind, I guess. So. a lot of our courses, we talk about the field to fork aspect of eating. Um, so we run some courses whereby if you've never picked up a shotgun in your life, we take you out for the day and we shoot clays in the morning and everyone has a couple of drives of pheasants in the afternoon. So everyone can experience what um, 
a sort of a proper game day is like. Uh, and then we do a fishing version of that. So we take people out. If you've never picked up a fly rod in your life, we teach you to fly cast. We've got an amazing instructor called Neil Keep who lives up in Bath, who's incredible. Um, I mean, I fly fished for a long time, but you definitely don't want to car- learn to cast from me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been desperate to come and do your fly fishing one. Oh, husband... Well, we've got one in June and we've got one in September. So if you're not too busy, I know you're really busy, but we should <laughs> yeah, one. That's... one. Um, but again, we like to show people that you can catch a fish. And then normally the following day, we do a sort of a fish butchery cookery day. So we can show people how to fillet a fish and then how to make all sorts of things out of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that the they, idea they, of the school. They stay on site or do they find they, own- they don't. Um, people, we we know a few of their local pubs. Um, there's a couple of the really good local country pubs that people stay in. Or uh, we're really near the pig near Bath. So we've got one, oh, of, the, one, yeah. Of, yeah, one of the pig hotels is literally 15 minutes from us. Um, so people often stay there. Um, so that was sort of the, the the initial idea was going to River Cottage and I went and caught this fish and we had this amazing meal. Um, and yeah, I guess the seed was sown and um, through various things that happened, I was uh, almost killed in a really big car accident in upstate New York, which sounds very dramatic. Um, it sort of was at the time. Now it's just sort of something that happened in the past. But I, I came back from that sort of wounded if that's the right word and um my my former life before this I worked in finance I've I'm not a trained chef I've always been a bit of a foodie if I'm honest with you but um about three or four days after the accident the company that I'd worked for for 20 years went belly up in the financial crisis so I went from being sort of uh well and employed to sort of injured and unemployed in the space of about four or five days um and my my wife Annie she sort of said uh, you know what I think the universe is sort of trying to tell you something yeah definitely it's crazy. I, yeah a bit of fate and I'd been um I mean I used to love love my old job and my old life but I got to the stage where I think it had run its course and um that sort of it that that instant sort of uh propelled me to go and do something else so Vale House Kitchen the room that I'm sitting in this was sort of a bit of a dilapidated old outbuilding and um we had this idea of sort of converting it into um yeah I'd say sort of state of the art cookery school it's I mean I think it's great I spend I spend a lot of time up here even when we haven't got people up here so <laughs> I love it it's, it's a brilliant so space it's so amazing light. yeah you did yeah. It's very, and you know, having all the old beams on the show, it's just, yeah. Yeah, it it is. It's incredible. Um, So, you know, the idea was sort of sprung and I uh, spoke to a local architect and just sort of everything, the sort of, you know, the the ball got rolling from there and we we decided to sort of take the plunge and and now we do this. Um, And and how did you, how do you find your tutors? uh, you know what, I think, um, and this is sort of going back to my wife, Annie, I think when you sort of put stuff out into the ether, um, you know, stuff comes back. So originally I knew, uh, oh, I still do know, uh, Tim Maddams. So a lot of people that listen to this, I'm sure will know Tim. Tim was very instrumental in helping us set up the school. He was one of our um, sort of top tutors for a really, really long time. Um, and then, I mean, Tim's now moved up to Scotland, sort of just, pre, it was actually pre-COVID, I think he moved up there. So Tim doesn't uh, teach here anymore, but I, I chat with Tim a fair bit. Um, you you and, basically, because I've obviously been to Tim's game. 
yeah. uh, courses and then yeah. now by you yeah and basically verbatim Tim yeah I know it's amazing I mean Tim's amazing I learned so much from Tim yeah but, so originally I'd met Tim at River Cottage when he was there and then when we came to set up Vale House Kitchen uh Tim was in the process of sort of setting up his own business which um was called Green Source I don't think Green Source actually exists in that form anymore um so he was doing some consultancy work I, I spoke to Tim and said, right, this is what we were planning on doing. He really, really helped us out. And then he introduced us to a chap called Robin, who used to run our pig butchery courses. Um, Robin doesn't now. Robin's actually, uh, I think Robin's on the uh, verge of moving to Australia. He runs, oh, wow. yeah, he runs something called the Rusty Pig. And I see that Rusty Pig is um, in its format that exists now is closing down I don't think it's closing down completely but I believe Robin's sort of going to spend sort of six months of the year in Australia and then maybe come back anyway so Tim introduced me to Robin so Robin and then I don't know we just found some really amazing local tutors and um, Neil who does our fly fishing uh someone sort of said oh if you think of running fly fishing courses um you want to speak to Neil so we got in touch with Neil um Frank Shellard um, over in Wello, where we do our shooting courses. Uh, someone said, oh, yeah, if you think of doing shooting, you know, to go and speak to Frank. And it just sort of happened quite organically, to be honest with you. Um, do you still do the pig butchery course? We do, yeah. So we're now we've got an amazing guy called Steve Lamb, who a lot of people know from being at River Cottage. Steve now does a lot of his own stuff. But Steve teaches here quite a bit. So he teaches our pig butchery. We do a lot of... Um, I teach a half-day smoking and curing course, so an introduction to smoking and curing. Um, Steve, if anyone uh, was aware when I was doing my smoking on Instagram, Bod was sort of guiding me through the entire thing. Yeah, no, it's good. Well, I mean, um, <laughs> smoking and curing, actually, not that you can see because this is a podcast, but just above my head, I've got a couple of copper. So that is the neck muscle, the cured neck muscle of a pig. Um, it's quite famous in Italy. It's sort of quite revered in Italy. So I've got a couple of copper hanging up, and then I've got a couple of big slabs of bacon that we've cured um, hanging up. These are from our own, our own. They are your own pigs. What yeah. So we keep we keep Oxford Sandian Blacks, which are sort of great big um, sort of rare breed. They're great big ginger and black things. They're amazing, and they taste absolutely delicious. Um, we get them from a, a brilliant lady called Susan Tanner, who runs the Oxford Sandy Black Society, and she is based maybe 15 or 20 minutes from here. Um, so, so, when, so when did you first get pigs? Was that quite an initial thing? We got pigs. So we've been here at Vale House for 12 years. The school's been open 10. We probably kept, we got our first pigs at, not long after the school's been open, so 10 years ago. Um I think we've had eight lots of pigs since we've been here every now and again. Wow. Yeah, every now and again, we give the bit of ground that the pigs live on a bit of time off yeah. um, to sort of regenerate. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, we had pigs last year that were incredible, as they always are. And yeah, they're sort of hanging up sort of just above my head. And but do you, for those and those are the ones that are butchered or do people bring their own bit of pig? No, we, we we generally use our own pigs in our butchery courses. Um, if we don't have any of our own pigs, we the way we do it is quite traditional. We always get our, our pigs in the uh, sort of late summer, early autumn. We keep them over winter and then we sort of normally butcher them sort of February, March, April. We sort of have courses then. Um, 
we do have a lot of smoking and curing and pig butchery courses throughout the year. And if we're not using our own pigs, we use Susan. So okay. Susan, uh, she, I think she has one of the biggest breeding herds of Oxford. So I know she's got maybe you cannot, pigs. just so everyone knows, you cannot bring your own pig to... <laughs> Uh, we've had, actually saying that we've had people um occasionally we do bespoke courses for people so um i know we had one uh a couple of well, actually i say a couple of years ago i always forget about covid so it's probably four years ago where someone uh had shot their own deer and they wanted to learn how to skin it and butcher it so occasionally someone will bring their own carcass with them and then we'll show them how to deal with it and then they sort of take it all away with them but Generally, we'll get um, pigs from Susan. I've got a couple of local people that I know uh, that go out stalking. So we get local venison. I do a bit of deer stalking myself. So if I go out and shoot, well, it'll be a roebuck at this time of year, I'll bring it back and butcher it myself. So we've always got lots of venison in the freezer, which is amazing. But um, Have you ever had anyone faint on one of your courses or we, being like super grossed out? Only, only once. We had, wow. a guy, yeah, we had a guy that came on a uh, pig butchery course who, um, how do I put this politely? I think he'd had quite a, uh, quite a late night the night before. <laughs> so I think he was probably feeling a little bit under the weather anyway. And um, one thing that we always really like to highlight, and not only when you're butchering a, a pig, but it's quite important, sort of offal. Offal is this amazing, certainly if you keep your own pigs and you get your own offal back, because it's so fresh, it's absolutely amazing. And I know that when you say offal, could you what exactly do you mean by offal? Just offal. So offal is sort of like heart, lungs, liver, kidneys. So um, all of that bit bit that used to be uh, we used to eat a lot of offal, and it's sort of really fallen out of favour. And I think um, I mean I remember back for uh, days when I was younger. You know, you need to be quite careful with offal. You can like overcook it really easily and then it's really not the joyous thing that you want it to be anyway going back to this chat we we got the offal out so when you take your pig to the abattoir not only do you get two halves of a pig back you get um what's called the pluck or the fifth quarter which is the offal that comes in sort of a big lump so generally it's the esophagus and then you've got the heart and the lungs and then you've got the liver you've often got the spleen um you get what's called crapinet which is the um Cool fat that you know if you make faggots if you see faggots faggots are traditionally wrapped in that cool fat which gives oh, it that yeah. fat. so that you comes can, sorry, that's you, you can eat the spleen and things like that yeah you can I mean often like so really really good faggots are often have a lot of the offal in it they'll have some minced pork in it as well or you can get lamb faggots in which case it would be the the offal from a lamb plus um plus lamb mince as well but all of that stuff i mean fresh liver is amazing as a like deviled kidneys is one of my favorite things to eat generally because it's got cream and generally <laughs> dairy or yeah I'm, i like kidneys and i've eaten heart i had um venison yeah. heart. Sorry, I totally interrupted your story about this. Oh, don't. Well, so anyway, this chap came on the course, going back to that, and we got the offal out, and it comes in a big lump, and it sort of does, I wouldn't say it's intimidating, but if you're not feeling very well, it's quite graphic. And it was at that moment he said, I think I need to leave. He he went very green. And, um, yeah, and we, we were a bit like, okay, and, and off he went. 
so yeah, um, I know like on some of our game courses we've definitely had people be like oh I'm really not very comfortable when you have yeah, we, I mean yeah. I think I think we did a thing together maybe last year or the year before and we had someone um when we were plucking and drawing the partridge like there's no if you're going to pluck and draw a bird so you're going to the, the drawing bit which is just taking the guts out there's no way you can dress it up it's not pleasant and I've, um, I think we had someone on one of the things that when they had to pull all the guts out of the partridge they were a bit like Whoa, this is yeah crap. well actually I think even I one year I was doing one partridge and I was like I actually cannot deal with the smell of yeah. it it's, 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 no. it's just one of those things um yeah, I mean, if we want to talk about game, which I guess we sort of should, um, I think it's uh, quite interesting that people have a, quite a preconceived idea of game. So they think you can only really eat game from like October to like the end of January. Yeah, couldn't have been for, couldn't be further from the truth. Um, one of the things that I always do is I will always pluck and draw partridge and keep them in the freezer because partridge on the barbecue are just a joyous thing. And you mm. can marinate them overnight. We always marinate them in a bit of olive oil, some garlic, some lemon juice, a little bit of cayenne pepper, um, and just leave that. And then you sort of put them on the barbie. Um, do you we often, them or do you yeah, know? we do. Spatchcock them out. And, you know, you don't need to cook them for very long at all. And um, we often call it posh KFC, which maybe I shouldn't say. But oh, it's, yeah, it's so. yeah, and it's, and you know, it's wonderful. Um but also, I mean, pigeon, there's lots and lots of pigeons around at this time of year, certainly when they've done all the drillings, which they, they are around here. They're sort of drilling a lot of the maize and stuff. You'll get a lot of pigeons. Um, again, pigeon shooting and eating pigeon are both, I think, incredible things to do. So, Yeah, because on the game courses, we sometimes change, switch up the birds, don't we? And do. I mean, if you're doing them during, if you're doing a game course during the sort of um, what people would imagine as the traditional game season, so obviously partridge partridge shooting starts on the 1st of September, but I would say most people think the game season properly starts on like the 1st of October. Obviously, if you're lucky enough to go and shoot grouse, it starts in the middle of August. But, <laughs> um, uh, but um I don't know. I, I I think it is nice to change things up and show people. Actually, if you've got uh, one of this year's pigeons, so if you've got a squab, they're so easy to pluck. Like the feathers literally come off them so easily. Um, so to pluck and draw like a young pigeon is one of is actually really quite easy, and they like, really are delicious. I haven't told you this. I put a video of you plucking a pheasant up on oh. TikTok, and it's got right. over twenty thousand views. No way. Yeah, people absolutely love it. Oh, God, that's incredible. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'm not, I, unfortunately, I'm quite a lot older than the younger generation. So TikTok is something that sort of passed me by. Um, we actually had a meeting with a social media lady and she's even she she was great. And she was sort of, you know, teaching us how we could get the most out of our social media. And um, even she said, yeah, you know what? I don't think TikTok is your sort of captive <laughs> So, I think I'm too old for TikTok. So, I'm just, you know. <laughs> well, if you are Louisa, then I really am. So, now I know, um, I know you were. We're sort of talking about. We were talking about smoking and curing and stuff. Um, and I know uh, one of the things that we love to do here is make salami. So we we make quite a lot of salamis, mainly because we keep our own pigs, and it also means we've got a ready sort of available supply of pork when we do that. But actually. Um, 
both venison and pigeon make incredible salamis. Oh, really? Yeah, they do. So you need to mix because um, game meat is very lean. It doesn't have a lot of fat. You generally need to use a 50-50 mix of pork uh, mince and whatever game you're using. So whether it be venison or whether it be pigeon. But actually, um, I remember a few, well, it's quite a few years ago now, I was on the uh, stage at the game fair with Tim and actually a chap called Tom Payne, who's quite famous for shooting lots of pigeons. And yeah. we did a pigeon, Tim did a pigeon butchery demo. I'd made some pigeon salami and Tom talked about shooting pigeons. And um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it does, you can use game in lots and lots of versatile ways, that's for sure. Um, do you think uh, you would ever do a salami course? Would that be possible? Yeah, we do. I mean, we we do a lot of smoking and curing courses. So I do like a half day introduction to smoking and curing. Um, and on that, we always make salamis, generally sort of traditional salami. So um, sort of just pork salamis. But um, occasionally, actually, we have made venison salamis just because um, people are quite interested in that. Yeah, um, I think I, a lot of people who stalk who would love to come and learn how to uh, make and I and I think well we we do run actually quite a few we probably run half a dozen venison courses a year which are really popular um round here we generally have roe deer so generally we skin butcher and then cook uh a roe deer um but there's a really um really fantastic chap called Matt who is Grove Game Larder on Instagram yeah. and he does a lot of stalking over towards sort of Bristol Bristol Airport around there and over there they've actually got a small population of fallow so every now and again we'll end up with a fallow which is obviously a lot bigger than a than a roe deer and they're I mean they're fantastic to butcher but amazing really really lovely um yeah. what is your which is your favorite course to teach oh my goodness that's a great question um, <laughs> that's quite a topic I do, I, I mean, uh, I do love to teach a bit of smoking and curing only because it's something that I really, really love to do. I'm about to say something that will make you laugh. Um, I teach a marmalade course every January um, only because I used to make marmalade with my grandmother from the age of like nothing. Um, so my father was in the Air Force. We lived all over the world. And uh, I went to boarding school from the age of like 13. And I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother um, and grandfather. These are the ones that live just outside Warwick. And um, I think a lot of what I do now and a lot of the values that I hold with respect to food really come from my Grandma, Grandma Molly, she was called. And she was a proper Aunt Bessie. So uh, she'd always make marmalade in January, which is traditionally when you're meant to make marmalade. She'd always be making chutney in the autumn. She had this huge Bramley tree in her garden that I can still picture. And she would gather up all these apples and she'd make chutney that she'd then use throughout the year. She always made her own bread and cakes and all of that stuff. Why do you make marmalade in January? January. Yeah. Um, so Seville oranges, which are the traditional oranges you're meant to make marmalade out of, are only around for about eight weeks. So you can generally in this country, you can generally get them from the beginning of January, normally through into February. Sometimes they turn up in December, not often, but normally sort of traditional Seville orange marmalade. The actual oranges that you make it out of are only around for about seven or eight weeks. So. Wow. Yeah, and that's, you know, there's the marmalade. Um, we had an amazing lady, again, that used to teach here called uh, Vivian, Vivian Lloyd, who's um, locally to here a really uh, sort of famous jam maker, preserver. Um, she used to teach up here quite a bit. And then 
sort of post-COVID, she's decided to sort of step back from um, teaching cookery schools. I think she still does some stuff online and I think she still does some stuff at her house, which isn't, she's literally about 20, 25 minutes from us. Um, but I, um, so I used to make marmalade a lot with my grandmother and then we were really lucky to have Viv teach here for many years. Um, and I think I brushed up my marmalade skills from her and I, there's every year. And again, you'll find this uh, maybe quite comical. There was something called the marmalade awards. They're always hosted in a big house. I can't remember the name of it up North. And um, I entered my marmalade one year and I won silver. So I won silver in homemade. And there were two categories. It was like homemade. And I think marmalade made by men, um, which nowadays is very, (laughs) I know, but, uh, but I won silver for my marmalade. So I, and, I now, um, once a year, so generally, I second or third week in January, I teach a marmalade course. And I really love doing that because it really sort of uh, takes me back to when I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother making marmalade with her. Bizarrely, I've still got um, a little wooden spoon. It's tiny. Like, yeah, I know you've got, I know you're against podcasts and people can't see, but you know, it's a little wooden spoon. And when she died, it was one of the things that got left to me in her will. Oh, from the age of about three or four, I'd always be generally stealing cake mix and, you know, all of that stuff. But I used to use it when we cooked together. So, yeah. I okay, think I might send my husband on the um, marmalade course. I oh, absolutely good. hate marmalade. You hate marmalade. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Marmalade's a very, very marmite sort of thing. I think that it's coming weird. back, though. It's one of those things that I think went out it of market, but it's definitely on its way back in. But there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of that that's on its way back. So like traditional preserving. So um, bizarrely, you could sort of argue that making salami and then making jams and marmalades and all of that sort of stuff as, uh, are a similar sort of thing to do, but in two very different ways. So um, one of the reasons that we, certainly if you look at charcuterie, so whether it be a copper or bacon or an air dried ham, um, if we were to rewind know six seven eight thousand years we didn't have fridges so we had to cure things uh so that we had food to eat generally in times when there wasn't um wasn't very much food that makes sense so traditionally um we so we domesticated pigs thousands of years ago so pigs are a really really good example uh so we domesticated pigs and traditionally what would happen is you 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 would get all your little baby pigs in the spring you'd keep them throughout the year and then you'd get to the autumn you'd have your big harvest and you and your merry little um band of people you'd eat everything you could and you generally end up with a big pile of stuff that's just going to go off so you'd feed all that to your pig because um pigs are 98% 98% human or human and 98% pigs. So they can eat exactly what, what we can. And your pig would get nice and big and fat. And traditionally, you would uh, kill it and butcher it at the beginning of winter. Um, and what's always quite, I find quite fascinating is most rare breed pigs uh, are very fatty, which nowadays is sort of um animal fats are certainly coming back into fashion, but we're out of fashion for a while. And the reason that rare breed pigs were so fat is you needed that fat to see you through the winter so you would eat all of the offal first because that's the first sort of stuff that would go off and then you would cure your pig so you would make salamis and bacon and hams and all of that sort of stuff and you'd hang it up um and it then meant that you would have a supply of food generally at a time whereby the you know nothing really great nothing really grows so you have food where usually you wouldn't 
Um, so uh, the uh, discovery that salt, if you put salt on something, will preserve its life, you know, lengthen its life so you can eat it, was a really, really big ad advancement in sort of the human species, if you like. So, yeah, um, yeah no, it's great. No, I'm, I'm waffling, I'm waffling. No, no, it's so, I just find it fascinating. And I just don't, I just don't understand how they discovered that. Like, I just. No, I'm sure there were a few, um, I'm sure there were a few unhappy experiments where <laughs> some people probably fell by the wayside. Um, yeah, but actually, um, there are a few little rules that you need to stick to. And if you follow those rules generally, well, I'd say like 99 times out of 100, you'll end up making something that A, is delicious and B, um, sort of won't have a shelf life. One of the things about if you cure something properly and you keep it in the right conditions, at the end of the process, you end up with a product that um, bad bacteria or bad microbes have got no interest in. So you've then got a product that sort of will last you for as long as you want it to last you, if that makes any sense. Um, it's a bit like if you go to Spain and you get these really, really expensive um, Ibirico hams, some of them will be have been hanging up for sort of five years plus. And all that happens there is you get a real concentration in the flavour. So they taste absolutely amazing. But if I said to you, right, we're going to take the back leg of this pig, we're going to stick it in salt for a bit, and we're going to hang it up, and we're going to eat it in five years time, you go, oh, God, you're completely mad. Like, yeah. So I guess that is actually a marketing. It's been marketed so cleverly. Yeah. But Maybe. it's something that, uh, you know, that we discovered. And um, I think... Uh, it's certainly, certainly in Europe. So, if you were to go to France or Spain or Italy, they, I think their food culture they're still a lot more in touch with their cu cultures with regard to food. So, you'll find that they do make a lot of amazing sort of charcuterie and also amazing cheeses and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm pretty sure we probably did in the UK once upon a time, um, but you know we've sort of somehow detached from that slightly and then if we're coming if I want to come sort of full circle back to Bellhouse Kitchen um it's certainly one of the things that we're sort of trying to show people that you know you can make your own bacon next time you're here Louisa I will make sure that you make some bacon because yeah. when you've made your own bacon I can guarantee that you'll never buy shop-bought bacon again and actually it's sort of quite simple again you need to stick to a few little rules but you will always have amazing bacon and people will come to you and go, well, Louisa, <laughs> some of your incredible bacon. I was like, do you think I could bring my own wild boar that I've shot? You could, yeah. You can make um, you can make stuff out of wild boar, of course. Yeah, that's what yeah. I really want to start because the wild boar population in the UK has gone through the roof recently. Has. It's nuts. Yeah, so I um, it's something that I'm very interested in marketing alongside pheasant. And right, pheasant. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it lends itself because it's obviously fattier than venison and stuff. So you yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you have to be um, a little bit careful. Uh, so all domestic or domesticated farm animals. So whether if I'm keeping my pigs, when I get my pigs, they've been wormed before I get them. So they've yeah. been treated and, that, you know, they won't, that won't, they won't get wormed again because, um we don't really keep them long enough. Most of our pigs go off to the abattoir between sort of six and nine months. Um, if we were keeping them, if we were going to be breeding from them, obviously we would need to worm them and stuff. Um, but when you're talking about wild food, wild food is incredible, but you need 
Uh, and this sort of certainly comes back to uh, Valhouse Kitchen and also the BGA as well. You need to have a lot more connection with it. So you need to know what you're doing. Like if you go out and you shoot a deer and actually the deer's got TB, um, yeah, obviously you don't want to eat. But you need to have that knowledge that when you shoot the deer and you growlick it and you take the gun, that you know what you're looking for. Um, and the same with wild boar as well. Wild boar are incredible, but obviously they're not worms. So um, one of the reasons that I think pork gets a really bad rap and is often really overcooked is way back when pigs generally can carry quite a lot of worms, whether they be tapeworms and roundworms and all of that sort of stuff. So one of the ways that you get around that is if you cook the meat far too long to a far too high temperature what will happen is any uh any of the eggs from the worms that are in the meat will will go um but so it's safe to eat but it also means then often pork's really overcooked and it's not not very nice but that's something you need to be off it with all the worm talk no i don't oh sorry i shouldn't i shouldn't (laughs) but it's just again it's quite um quite an interesting thing that you need to be aware of when you're you know when you're eating any wild food um you know, we're we're coming towards the end of May. Wild garlic, for instance, I'm going to, you know, we're talking about foraging, for instance. Um, we're getting towards the end of the wild garlic, certainly around here. Our wild garlic's always quite late. But if you're um, then talking about wild foods with respect to going out and picking things, um, you need to be quite careful because there are, uh, there are incredible things that you can pick and eat, like sort of wild garlic and nettles and dandelions if you want to and all of that sort of stuff. But there's also stuff that will really do you a lot of damage, you know, um, like hemlock. Hemlock, for instance, which sounds like we're going back to some sort of Shakespearean play. Like I was in days of old, people all seemed to get killed by hemlock. But mm-hmm. hemlock, I mean, it's a really common plant. It generally grows by water. Um, but you know, you sort of, if you are going to go out and harvest wild food, you need to have a bit of knowledge. Yeah, um, I think that's it, why it's so important that people like you are there educating people. Yeah, um, 100%. We're going to round it up soon. I could talk to you for hours. But what I just want to quickly touch on, when we come and do the game courses, yes. we always talk about some facts and figures um, around chickens that are chickens eating. and pheasants yes and i was yeah, just so um so two two of the things that uh if we go well we can go back to so pigs and chickens we domesticated a really really long time ago and um i think they both get a really really bad rap in intensification of farming and intensification of uh processes in food um which is sort of quite sad so uh like uh, one of the things, and you've heard me say this before, is we always say we say to people like, how many game birds are put down every year to be shot at? And the numbers always vary, but it's somewhere between 60 and 90 million. It's probably been a bit less sort of during COVID, but, um, you know, let, let's say it's like 80 million. You say to people, like oh, it's 80 million. And they go, oh, my God, that's like unbelievable. That's that. And then when you say to them, right, how, well, how many intensively farmed chickens do we grow in this country every year? And the caveat is we import a similar number again. And the number's not far off 2 billion. It's sort of about 1.7 billion, um, which people get sort of, you know, a little bit a, a little bit funny about, as it were. Um, it's nuts. It's so, that is just it is. so much. And all, you know, intensively farmed chickens... We eat a huge amount of them and they're generally alive for like a month, maybe a little bit longer. Certainly, you know, certainly a lot, uh, 
a lot shorter period of time than they should be alive because you know we've in, intensified that um the the way that we farm them whereas even if you are the most unlucky pheasant and you get shot on the first day of the season, you've still been alive for sort of five or six months. And yeah, yeah. Okay, it's not great if you're that pheasant, but you've had a, a like a naturalized life. You've been out, um, you know, you've scrabbled around and eaten insects and yeah. picked seeds and roosted in a tree and all of that stuff. Um, and I, I, I realize it's one of the things that we often say, you know, it's hard to argue that a pheasant is a truly wild bird because at the beginning of the process, you know, they are, again, are farmed quite intensively. I know the rules around game farming have got a lot tighter and certainly there's a lot less sort of antibiotics and stuff in game nowadays, whereas you'll find that all intensively reared food is generally has quite a lot of antibiotics in it and quite often quite a lot of steroids in it and all of that sort of stuff. Certainly lots and lots of water in it to pump up the weight a bit. Um, so I always like to argue that if you can, certainly eat game when it's readily available um, over intensively farmed chicken, which um, I feel it's quite sad that the poor old chicken gets, you know, um, there's a lot of people that, campaign for sort of the right of game birds whether that be you know i always think that the, there's a lot more education that could go into that um but it seems to be everyone's standing up for the pheasant and the partridge and yet the poor old chickens like they're not getting yeah. a look at them um which i think is a bit sad really. i know it's always it always blows my brain when someone gets angry at the fact that i shoot and i'm like but you yeah. you eat meat and i'm yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah i know i mean it's it's a hard one if people want to eat cheap food which generally they you you know if you want to go and buy like 10 chicken breasts for a fiver then for that to be able to happen you have to really industrialize the process uh which means that um the well the bird in this case goes from becoming uh it becomes a commodity it goes it goes from becoming a thing to it you're think, just yeah. looking at that to see like how much money can I make out of that chicken and what do I have to do to have loads of chickens so I can make quite a lot of money out of it um you know it's it's a hard one it's a really really hard debate and it's certainly nothing that you know you should shy away from but I certainly do think that if people are able to eat game when it's readily available which is sort of throughout the winter really or certainly autumn and winter that people should should look at doing it because um, I mean, I th I love game, you know. What's your, okay, so final things. We'll finish on a nice positive. Oh, um, What's your favourite game dish to cook? My favourite game. Oh god, that's almost impossible. Um, <laughs> we, I make I make a half a half decent a decent uh, pheasant curry. We eat a lot of pheasant curry, so I love that. Um, and we also eat quite a lot of sort of pheasant flatbreads, you know, oh, sticky, yeah. we do a sticky pheasant dish, which I know that you've done with us. Um, and it's quite versatile. So you can put pheasant in it or you can put rabbit in it or you can put partridge in it. Um, and it's, yeah, like a sort of, we call it a sticky pheasant wrap, which is sort of a, an Asian-y type uh, flavoured wrap, really. And we eat quite a lot of those. So it would have to be one of those two, to be honest hey. with you. Yeah, I love that that wrap. Um, well, thank you so much, Bod. It's been an absolute delight to chat to oh, you. Oh, it's brilliant. It's been um, great. It's great to see you. Well, just so if anyone wanted to get in contact, you, what's your Instagram? 
So we're Vale House Kitchen everywhere. So we're Vale House Kitchen on Facebook. Uh, we're uh, Vale House Kitchen on Instagram. Uh, the website, if you want to jump on and look at any courses, is www.valehousekitchen.co.uk. Um, if anyone wants to get send me an email, I'm bod at valehousekitchen.co.uk. So, yeah, any questions, please, um, please get in touch. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Chat soon. Okay, cheers. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do like and share and follow us on your podcast provider. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.